Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're ready, spiritually prepared to study the word and to uh, focus and concentrate and clear out the cobwebs and Wake up those brain cells and all those other things we need to do to focus and put aside all the cares and distractions and worries and anxieties that often uh, capture our minds just as soon as Bible class starts. So rather than let your minds drift, we'll focus on the Word. And uh, let's go ahead and pray as we begin. Father, we're so thankful for your word and for the things that we learn as we study it, and we recognize that all areas of doctrine ultimately fit together and reveal to us your perfect plan. That perfect plan includes not only a plan for history, but it includes the plan for each of our lives as that fits within your plans and purposes for history. And as we study every aspect of doctrine, it enables us to see how we fit into that plan, how the microcosm of our life fits within the macrocosm of your plan and your purposes in history. Father, we pray that as we study these things, it might not be just a a study of future things, a study of what will take place in the end times, but also will remind us of the fact that you are a God who is in control of history, a God who is directing the course of history, and that no matter how chaotic Things may appear, no matter what the crises of the day may be, we can rest and relax knowing that you're in control and therefore we can be about the ministry that you've given us and that we can serve you in our uh, lives and continue to pursue our own spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles, if you wish, to the book of Amos. One thing nice about doing this little study of the Day of the Lord is you're becoming acquainted with some sections of your Bible that you weren't sure were actually there. You just heard a passing reference to these places like Zephaniah and Amos and Habakkuk and a few of these other books that are uh, small and hidden away between Daniel and Matthew, and so we get some acquaintance with that as we study the day of the Lord. Now, as we are studying the day of the Lord, what I am doing, as much for my benefit as yours, is uh, taking us through an inductive study of this terminology related to a day of the Lord. Rather than just giving you my conclusions, I'm trying to take you through all the different passages so that you have an understanding of what these verses are talking about. This covers a lot of passages of Scripture and is a key concept 
throughout Scripture and to even begin to put together a lot of things related to the end times, we have to understand the concept, the doctrine of the day of the Lord. First point, by way of review, and what I'm doing tonight is summarizing. Each time as we go through, we'll add some new passages and then summarize what we've learned in a more deductive sense. But we've reached these conclusions through an inductive study of the Word. So first of all, we recognize that the day of the Lord is a doctrine that reminds us that sin and evil will not go unpunished. God is waiting until the proper time. He is long-suffering, the Scripture says, and there will come a time when his plan has come to its proper, uh, proper goal, and at that time and only at that time will God finally judge sin and evil. If he does it today, then that ends history. When he does it, it will end history, and as long as he puts that off, there will be opportunity for thousands millions to come to salvation and to respond to the gospel. And so often we get frustrated with God when we experience our own areas of injustice. And many of us, frankly, have not experienced the kinds of injustices that that many people in Earth's history have experienced when they get involved in a uh, in the middle of a war that they have nothing to do with or they are... Uh, lose everything in the midst of some sort of economic uh, catastrophe or if they lose everything because of some uh, natural disaster, if they built their house out on uh, Crystal Beach and enjoyed many years of uh, recreation on Crystal Beach and then Hurricane Ike comes along and there's absolutely nothing left, that is part of living in the cosmic system. But there is a sense, a very real sense, where... When that kind of thing happens, we, we, we grieve legitimately and we feel like there's something dreadfully wrong with the universe. And there is. It's called sin. And God is going to make all things right at some point and he is going to judge sin and evil. And that comes to its ultimate fruition at the day of the Lord. So it is a very practical doctrine from that viewpoint because it helps us to have patience today knowing that at some point whatever injustices we experience today uh there will be a rest uh, there will be a uh there will be proper judgment from the supreme court of heaven. Second thing we've learned is that the day of the Lord is a term that has a general meaning in the sense of just a time of divine judgment in history, but its primary use is in relation to a final climactic judgment where Satan is judged, the enemies of God are judged, and this immediately precedes the establishment of his kingdom on earth at a time when there will be a restoration of the earth, a turning, rolling back of the curse so that there is a time of relative perfect environment. It's not absolute perfect environment. That only existed in the Garden of Eden. Even in the Millennial Kingdom, there will be uh, human beings that are born that have sin natures, there will be injustice because of sin will still be around, but 
the curse on nature will be rolled back. The lion will lie down with the lamb. A child will put his hand into a an adder's den and these kinds of things. Uh, so that element is changed so that man can't blame his environment anymore for his sin. If there are problems, it's just because of human uh, human sin and the sin nature. When we look at the term of the day of the Lord, uh, uh, the thir- I guess the third point that I'm focusing on is that the day of the Lord will be a time of universal judgment on the arrogant human race who has opposed God and his people Israel. So it's a time of worldwide judgment. This is seen in passages such as Isaiah 2, 11 to 12, uh, 2, 17, Isaiah 34, 2, and Obadiah verse 15. This is emphasizes that worldwide judgment. Now at this time, there's a, the principle so you can remember that. It's universal. This is so these other events that are called the day of the Lord are simply foreshadowings or pictures of what it will be like in the ultimate final day of the Lord. But the focal point is that God eventually will establish justice. Now, as we go through these passages, I've looked at these various prophets and what they've said about it. And I've, uh, with the exception of looking at Isaiah at the beginning, I've tried to take these in their chronological order. So I made this chart today to give you some idea of the temporal relationship, the chronological relationship between the prophets. The timeline, which is comes across up there as sort of a bluish-purple, starts with David, the reign of David in 1010 B.C., approximately. All of these dates are approximate. And the more I study things related to Old Testament chronology, the more confused I become because there are only a few certain dates that we have going back to about the 8th century B.C. And beyond that, things get to be a little bit uh, shaky. And I've recently read some works by conservatives who take all the numbers in the Bible literally, but they stretch things about a 100 or so years. So we're not talking about huge time differences. We're not talking about challenges between liberals and conservatives. We're talking about just trying to understand how the ancient world computed and figured time and reigns and that sort of thing. But I still use what is generally accepted dates for the events in the Old Testament until I can figure out all these various other things that are going on. So it's generally accepted that David was uh, became king about 1010 B.C., that the first temple was built about 9, the foundation was laid in 967 B.C., Solomon came to the throne about 970 uh, B.C., and upon his death, the kingdom divided in 931 into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The timeline for the northern kingdom of Israel ends in 722 B.C. when they were defeated by the Assyrians, and then the population was resettled into various areas of the Assyrian Empire, and other conquered people were resettled into the area of the northern kingdom.
The southern kingdom extended until 586 B.C. when they were defeated by Nebuchadnezzar in his third invasion of the southern kingdom. Then there's a 70-year gap when they're out of the land, and in 538 Cyrus gives a decree to Zerubbabel allowing the first group to return with him to begin to rebuild uh, Jerusalem to begin to rebuild the temple. Now, in relation to that, we see these the timeline of the various prophets. The earliest prophet of those that we've studied is more, more most likely Obadiah, although the dates of Obadiah and Joel are debated. I believe that um, it's most likely that both Obadiah and Joel were early. And Obadiah's dates would be about approximately 848 to 841 B.C. This is about the time of the events in Second uh, Kings chapters 9 and 10, coming up in our, in our study 9, 10, 11, 12, approximately that time. That's where Obadiah fits. Joel comes just a little bit after that. And that time would be somewhere between 840 B.C. and 835 B.C. So this is very early in, in the history of the, uh, the history of the southern kingdom. Then a century goes by before we come to Amos in 752 B.C. and Isaiah in 740. Now, uh, uh, Amos, I brought that timeline down, that line from Amos down too far. Amos is in the northern kingdom. He's not, uh, he's not in the southern kingdom. That's why I have that block up on top. He is not a prophet to the, to the south, but to the north. All the others are in the south. And Isaiah has a rather lengthy ministry from 740 to 680 BC, covering a period of 60 years. And he dies about a hundred years before the southern kingdom goes out under uh, divine discipline. Zephaniah has a short, a short ministry, 640 B.C., some 40 years after Isaiah, and uh, he probably wrote Zephaniah about uh, 630. He began about 640 is the earliest he could be, but somewhere in the early stage of, of uh, Josiah's reign before the... Uh, before the um, uh, Revival, the cleansing of the temple takes place and everything, so that would be probably around more, more like 630 BC. Then Ezekiel is a prophet at the time of the exile, and he writes 600, 590, and then some is even, uh, he's taken out under the, uh, in the second group of deportees, uh, in the, um, in the 590s. So he writes during that time. Then we have the gap of the Babylonian exile, and then Zechariah writes not long after the return, the same time as as Haggai. Both of them are challenging the exiles to rebuild the temple. So that gives you a relative time frame for understanding how these prophets uh, fit together. Now, that's not all of them. That's only the ones that I'm uh, referencing in our study of the Day of the Lord. So we're looking at these, taking the doctrine as it's revealed historically through a chronological grid. Fourth, 
thing we've learned is that the day of the Lord will be a time of unimaginable terror in the souls of men, such that they flee before God and hide in the caves of the earth for protection. We saw that in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 10, 19, and 21. And then the fifth point is that this seems to correlate to the sixth seal judgment in Revelation 6.14, where the kings of the earth are, are hiding in the caves, uh, hiding from God, hoping to survive this judgment as there's this uh, incredible uh, stars falling from the earth, uh, meteor shower or asteroid shower, something of that, uh, of that nature takes place. So four and five go together. Four is it's a time of unin- uh, unimaginable terror in the souls of men such that they flee before God and hide in the caves of the earth for protection. And five, that seems to fit with the description of uh, what takes place in Revelation 6.14 in the sixth seal judgment. So however you understand the chronology of Revelation, most people would see that as taking place in the first half. If you would try to put all the judgments in the second half, but uh, I think this is at least in the first half, if not in the first half of the first half. Six, thus we learn that there must be several distinct times when there are going to be these signs in the heavens. You can't just come along and say, well, this passage talks about the sun being darkened and the moon turning to blood. This passage talks about the sun being darkened and the moon turning to blood. This pa- and that they're all referring to the same event. This, these kinds of astrogeophysical uh, cataclysm seems to occur several times with increasing devastation as you go through the period of the tribulation. So I want to break that down for you a little bit. Uh, first of all, under 6a, Isaiah 2:10 through 20 correlates with the sixth seal, where there is also a, stated to be a great earthquake, the sun is darkened, the moon turns to blood, And this is accompanied by stars falling from the heavens and the sky splitting apart like a scroll. And that's all seen in Revelation 6, 12 through 14. As John looks and the sixth seal is open, there's a huge earthquake. This is the first mention of at least four major earthquakes that take place within just the description of the book of Revelation. But I don't think the book of Revelation tells us of every one of these kinds of events that occur during the tribulation. And the sun becomes black as sackcloth. That could just be from atmospheric, something in the uh, Earth's atmosphere that causes the sun to look as if it's lost its uh, illuminating ability. And also it could be dust or other particles in the Earth's atmosphere making the moon appear uh, to be read, just like it does sometimes when you see it coming up and it's low in the horizon and there's a lot of uh, uh, pollution or dust or something like that in the air. And then it's, verse 13 describes these stars of heaven falling to the earth like a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. Very descriptive uh, metaphor there. Then the sky recedes as a scroll. Now, this isn't the only time this image is used. But I think that the two times we see this, they're not talking about the same event because of the context. For example, in Isaiah 34, 4, says, All the host of heaven will wear away, 
and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine or as one withers from the fig tree. So we have that same uh, scroll imagery. Uh, the sky recedes as a scroll is rolled up, Revelation 6.14. Uh, but it, it has other aspects. There's a note of finality in Isaiah 34.4. The context seems to relate to the end of the tribulation period rather than the beginning of the tribulation period. So that's all under the uh, sub-point A, relating Isaiah 2, 10 through 20, with the sixth seal, which is early in the first half of the tribulation period. Under B, the fourth trumpet judgment, which comes sometime later, also describes such a phenomenon. So the fourth trumpet judgment also describes the sun being darkened and the moon being darkened. The fourth angel sounds and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened and a third of the day did not shine and likewise the night. Now this seems to suggest that something has happened to the sun and the moon themselves, but again, it could also be phenomenological. By that I mean it is explained from the perspective of what is seen and doesn't necessarily mean that the sun or the moon actually reduce their light or their, or their heat. It may be difficult for life to continue if that were to happen, so it's probably uh, in the way it appears to man upon the earth. And I don't think this is permanent. If, if this is in the trumpet judgment, this is in the first half. And so this is not a permanent thing. This is something that happens, another cataclysm that occurs during the tribulation period. Under C, we also see that in Isaiah 13, which describes the final destruction of Babylon, that there are similar astrogeophysical phenomena. Now, Revelation 17 and 18 tell us that Babylon is destroyed near the end of the tribulation period at the beginning of the Armageddon campaign. And so in Isaiah 13:10 and 13, we read, For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth and the moon will not cause its light to shine. Now, in the, in the um, seal judgments, it was a third of the light, or the, the sun was darkened, and rather the sun was darkened and the moon turned to blood. When we got into the trumpet judgments, it's a third of the light of the sun is gone, and a third of the light of the moon is gone. And here... There, there's no, and there, that's the last mention of something happening to the sun and the moon in Revelation. But in Isaiah 13, what we have is it appears to be more absolute that the sun is darkened and the moon will not shine. And this context seems to put it immediately before the return of the Lord Jesus Christ at the time of the destruction of Babylon. Verse 13 says, I will shake the heavens. The earth will move out of her place. And does that mean that it moves out of its current orbit? I'm not sure, this, but this seems to have uh, tremendous consequences from this judgment in terms of the violence on the planet itself. And the wrath of the Lord of hosts and the day of his fierce anger. Now, the only other event related to the sun 
in the second half of the tribulation is in the fourth bowl judgment, which speaks of an intensification of the heat from the sun. So the point D here, we have the intensification of heat from the sun in the fourth bowl judgment, Revelation 16, 8 and 9. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And the men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. So the sun here becomes much warmer, and we will finally have real global warming. Then E under point two, I mean point six. When compared to Isaiah 13:13, though, it appears that a complete darkening does come at the end. So that's how I think it goes together. Now, the seventh point we saw is in Isaiah 13:8 compares the day of the Lord and all of these cataclysms to labor pains preceding a birth. The real hope, as we'll see tonight, in the day of the Lord is that this is a time when the Lord is going to come and establish the kingdom. It is a time of glory, a time of joy, a time of perfect environment. But before that happens, before the kingdom is is birthed, there are these labor pains of judgment that must first take place. Now, the other thing we saw last time, we looked at Joel, and we saw that Joel also speaks of these astrogeophysical phenomena just preceding the day. So in Joel 2.11, the Lord uh, introduces the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Joel 2.31, the sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and the awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, that terminology of the sun being darkened, moon into blood, sounds just like what's described in relation to the sixth seal. But the sixth seal is is much earlier, unless Joel is just seeing these events and they're, they're telescoped uh, together. So he really isn't seeing the time difference between them, which is which is very possible. But by the time you get down to Joel 2.31, that's just before the Lord returns. So it appears that Joel 2.31 is describing events right at the time of the, the Lord's return, which would fit with Isaiah, uh, the Isaiah 30, uh, 13 passage. Point number nine, we saw that the day also precedes the time of God's greatest blessing, for Israel and the establishment of the kingdom. So that summarizes what we've seen so far in terms of this use of the term Day of the Lord. Tonight we're going to go to a new book, uh, Amos, or Amos, and the phrase the Day of the Lord is used in uh, two, pl- two places. The, you have the exact phrase in Amos 5, 18 and 20, and then you have an allusion to it in chapter 9, where it's just referred to as that day. Okay, so first we'll look at Amos 5, Amos 5.18. Now, the historical setting of this is that Amos is prophesying in approximately 750 B.C., 7 
probably 752 B.C. Now, we know that because in the first uh, chapter, actually it's not in the first chapter, but it's later on in the book, it talks about an earthquake that occurs. And this, the book is written uh, in proximity to this earthquake, and that earthquake has been dated to 750 B.C. in a quite a technical piece of writing by uh, Dr. Stephen Austin, who is going to be one of our speakers at the conference in March, who's a geologist, did a tremendous amount of research over in Israel in relation to this, and um, you know, wrote a technical article for a geo, uh, geologic journal, geology journal, and it was co-authored by Gordon Franz, who frequently publishes in Bible and Spade, uh, usually comes to pre-trib, uh, uh, excellent uh, ar- biblical archaeologist. And uh, Dr. Austin was telling me that when uh, he submitted this article for publication to this uh, geology journal, they wanted to know why there were so many scripture references. And he said, well, that's the evidence. So it, but it's very, but they did a great job and they were able to date the earthquake and by dating the earthquake you can date the book of, of Amos and determine when this was, uh, when this was written. So this occurs approximately 750, 752 BC and the focus is during the time when the northern kingdom is on the, within about 30 years of being destroyed by the Assyrian Empire. And so that is the focal point, and the people are uh, full of themselves. It's a time of tremendous arrogance in the northern kingdom. That is a time during the reign of Jeroboam II, which is one of the last times that God really extends grace to the northern kingdom of Israel before they are uh, finally destroyed by the Assyrian army. And so the people are are arrogant, and in chapter 5, uh, Amos is pleading with Israel to the northern kingdom to turn back to God and to recognize that he is the ultimate authority, but they refuse to do that. And we see a, an example here of how, in fact, they uh, distort uh, scripture, because they're looking for the day of the Lord to come and just make everything right without realizing that they have to be properly aligned to the justice of God. Now let's pick up the context in verse 16. Therefore the Lord God of hosts, the Lord says this, There shall be wailing in all streets, and they shall say in all the highways, Alas, alas, or woe, woe, which indicates tremendous mourning. This is the cry of the mourners uh, in the ancient world of Israel at the time of a funeral. They shall call the farmer to mourning and skillful, skillful lamenters to wailing. In all vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through you, says the Lord. Verse 18, now it's when we have our first reference. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. See, they just, they're just looking for all the blessings, not realizing that the blessings only come to those who are rightly related uh, to the justice of God. 
Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord, for what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or as though he went into the house, leaned his hand on the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Is it not very dark with no brightness in it? The point is the day of the Lord here is referring to a time of judgment on Israel. Now, most scholars believe that this is not referring to the uh, historic, I mean, to the end times, but rather this is referring to the immediate judgment that was coming on the uh, northern kingdom in 722. But it also seems to me that it provides uh, an allusion at the very least to the end times and may, in fact, be directly related to the end times because everywhere else in these prophets that we read the phrase, the day of the Lord, it is clear that it's talking about an end time event. And we've gone through a couple of those other passages in Obadiah and others and Joel 2 where an attempt is made by some to show that this referred to a historical fulfillment related, for example, Joel 2 related to the uh, 586 destruction of the southern kingdom. But the only other place that we really have a discussion, an emphasis on this day, is in chapter 9. And chapter 9 is clearly in the future. So I, I, I'm not sure that there is enough data given in chapter 5 to be absolutely certain at this point that that is uh, not eschatological. But chapter 9 certainly is. And in chapter 9, chapter 9, uh, Amos has a, another vision, and he sees the Lord standing by the altar. This is in heaven. Again, very similar to the type of visions we've seen in Revelation where John sees the heavenly uh, temple and sees the altar in heaven. And he says, I saw the Lord standing by the altar, and he said, Strike the doorposts that the thresholds may shake and break them on the heads of them all. I will slay the last of them with the sword. So it's clearly announcing divine judgment upon Israel, he who flees from them shall not get away, and he who escapes from them shall not be delivered. Though they dig into hell, from there my hand shall take them. Though they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. What we learn about this is the day of the Lord. There is no escape. Everyone will be brought uh, to accountability. And it continues on in that vein until we get down to about verse uh, let's go down to about verse 5. The Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts. All who dwell there mourn. Now that imagery of touching the earth and melting fits with the conditions surrounding the judgment at Armageddon and the destruction that occurs throughout the earth as a result of the bold judgments. It says, he who touches the earth and it melts and all who dwell there mourn. All of it shall swell like the river and subside like the river of Egypt. He who builds his layers in the sky and has founded his strata in the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth, the Lord is his name. So verse 6 is talking about God as the creator who is in control of human history. He's the one who has built everything. He's the one who has 
constructed the different uh, layers in the upper atmosphere. He's the one who has laid down uh, the strata in the earth via the flood. He's the one who controls the waters and the seas. He is the creator. And in verse 7 we read, Are you not like the people of Ethiopia? To me, O children of Israel, says the Lord, did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt, the Philistines from Kaftor, and the Syrians from Kir? So what he's doing is he's saying that he controls the the destiny of all the nations, including uh, Israel. Verse 8, Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. That is related to the apostate uh, apostate Israel in the end times. And I'll show you why I'm saying this is in the tribulation uh, when we get down to verse 11. Because the verses from up to verse 11, verses 1 through 10, immediately precede what occurs in verse 11. What occurs in verse 11 is the establishment of the Messianic kingdom. So the Lord says in verse 8, he will destroy the sinful kingdom. That's the uh, what is the, the apostate apostate Israel in the end times. I will destroy it from the face of the earth, yet I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. It's not a total destruction of the house of Jacob because a remnant will survive. Uh, As grain is sifted in a sieve, yet not like the smallest grain shall fall to the ground. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword. By sinners, he's not meaning those who are fallen. He's referring to those who have rejected the Messiah. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say the calamity shall not overtake us nor confront us. See, they have this arrogance up until the end that somehow just because of who they are as as descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that the calamity won't come on them. And that's the same kind of arrogance we saw with the Pharisees when Jesus came, is they felt like just because they were descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were saved. That's one reason I think that the passage in Isaiah, I mean in uh, uh, Amos 5 that is talking about uh, those who are saying, who are anticipating the coming of the day of the Lord is a wonderful thing, fits this same scenario. And that might be historical that they have the same arrogance and they're just looking ahead that when the day of the Lord, which would be an eschatological term, that when that comes, everything will be wonderful and there's no recognition that they're not right with the justice of God. So in, even in that case, day of the Lord does not necessarily have to refer to the historical judgment of Assyria. It can very well have its meaning that we find in most of the prophets, which is the final judgment that comes uh, at the end of the tribulation period. So what we learn from Amos 5.18 and 5.20 is that the day of the Lord includes judgment. It is darkness and not light. What we learn from Amos chapter 9 is that there is this judgment on Israel that will destroy much of Israel, many of the people, but it precedes the... Uh, restoration of the house of David, beginning in verse 11. On that day, there's that use of that term, that day, as a shorthand for the day of the Lord. On that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. See, the 
tabernacle of David, the house of David, the dynasty of David is not in operation from the time of the uh, return at the exile up to the present. There is not a Davidic king upon the throne. I will raise up the tabernacle of David. This is in the person of, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the uh, descendant of David and has the and is the heir to the throne. The tabernacle of David, which has fallen down and repair its damages, I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. So it has to do with the possession of the land of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does this thing. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seeds. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow. All this is imagery related to tremendous agricultural productivity and prosperity. Verse 14, I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. That's the return of the remnant to the land at the end of the tribulation period. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. There's, that's the finality there. So the fulfillment of 11 through 15 doesn't take place until the time when the Lord returns and establishes his kingdom. Since 11 through 15 is clearly related to events that come after the second coming, verses 1 through 10 then have to be those judgment events that occur just before the second coming. So Amos tells us that the day of the Lord is a time of judgment, not just a time of blessing. Now the next book that I want to look at, the next message, the next use is in Zephaniah. In Zephaniah. So you just have to turn. You know you're still going to be in the Minor Prophets. So you just have to turn about three or four books to the right, and you'll come to Zephaniah. Now Zephaniah is a comes after Isaiah. Isaiah ends his ministry, dies about 680. Zephaniah ministers during the time of Josiah, before just probably just before the uh, revival that occurs there under Josiah. So we put his date at six, uh, 630. And the key uh, principle that is being covered in uh, these chapters, just three chapters in Zephaniah, focus on the day of the Lord and primarily the first chapter. So let's just kind of read through this and hit the high points, and I'll bring out the key verses in just a minute. The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, or Zephaniah, probably how it was pronounced because in Hebrew the uh, accent's always on the last syllable. Sometimes that's a little hard for us to pronounce, like Jews will pronounce the name of Nehemiah, Nehemiah. Doesn't sound the same, does it? So we'd have uh, something like Zephaniah would be the way it would be pronounced. That last syllable, Yah, is the, is the name of God, the first syllable in the name of God. So he comes to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of 
Ammon, king of Judah. Now, Hezekiah was the king who preceded Josiah. So this indicates that Zephaniah was in the aristocracy, and he was uh, royalty. He was, in fact, related to Josiah. And that it, this is about the only case among the prophets where you get more than the father mentioned. There's the father, the grandfather, and the great-grandfather mentioned. So he is in the royal line, which means he would also be of the house of David. In verse 2, he begins the prophecy, I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord, complete destruction. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, the stumbling blocks along the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off every trace of Baal from this place, the names of the idolatrous priests, those who worship the hosts of heaven on the housetops, those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord. And it continues, and this is in reference to the in these first verses, in reference to the historic judgment that was coming in 586. Then when you get to verse 7, there is a shift as we begin to talk about the day of the Lord. Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. Now that's the same terminology you have in Revelation, where it says the return of the Lord Jesus Christ is near. It refers to imminence as opposed to necessarily a chronological proximity. Uh, the day of the Lord is at hand, for the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited his guests, and it shall be in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children and all such as are clothed with foreign apparel. In the same day, I will punish all those who leap over the threshold, who fill their master's house with violence and deceit. And then in verse 10, we read, And there shall be on that day, says the Lord, the sound of a mournful cry from the fish gate, a wailing from the second quarter, a loud crashing from the hills. Wail, you inhabitants of Maktesh, for all the merchant people are cut down, all those who handle money are cut off, and it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish the men who are settled in complacency, who say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. See, that's that same kind of uh, arrogant uh, misrepresentation of God and judgment that you have uh, referenced in Amos. Then skip over to verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near. Put that up on the screen. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. Now this is one negative term after another piled up. And it reminds me of the passages in, that we've seen in Matthew chapter 24 and other passages where uh, uh, Daniel chapter 12 that described the, the time of the day of the Lord, the end time, as a unique time in history, one of a kind in the tribulation. So this is a time of the day of the Lord's wrath. And it, and it goes on in chapter 2 to call them to repentance before there begins to be an outline of the judgment upon uh, upon the nations, ultimately leading through to the end of the uh, of the book with an emphasis on um, 
emphasis on the faithful remnant, which occurs in the end times in the, in the millennial kingdom. So this is a focus, again, on the day of the Lord as a, as a present uh, time of judgment. That's Zephaniah. So what we learn from Zephaniah, again, is the focus on judgment, not just the establishment of the kingdom, not just the blessing. Now, the next passage I want to look at is in Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is written uh, in around 595 to 590. He's taken captive to Babylon in 597. So you need to turn back to uh, Ezekiel. It's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then Daniel. And we'll turn to Isaiah chapter uh, chapter 30. Isaiah chapter 30. The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, Son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God, Wail, woe to the day. There again we have this shortened uh, form for the day of the Lord, just a reference to the day. Woe to the day, for the day is near. Even the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, the time of the Gentiles, the sword shall come upon Egypt, the great anguish shall be in Ethiopia when the slain fall in Egypt and they take away her wealth and her foundations are broken down. Now that did not occur in 586. So this is clearly for us even an unfulfilled prophecy and something that takes place in the far future. Uh, Verse 5, Ethiopia, Libya, Lydia, all the mingled people, uh, Chub, which is a reference to the area around the Sudan. And the men of the lands who are alive shall fall with them by the sword. Thus says the Lord, those who uphold Egypt shall fall, and the pride of her power shall come down. So this uh, emphasizes the uh, destruction and judgment upon uh, Egypt that will come before the uh, millennial kingdom. Then skip down to verse 7. They shall be desolate in the midst of their desolate countries. Her cities shall be in the midst of the cities that are laid waste. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I have set a fire in Egypt and all her helpers are destroyed. See, that hasn't happened yet. They haven't recognized the Lord. On that day, verse 9, on that day, messengers shall go forth from me in ships to make the careless Ethiopians afraid and great anguish shall come upon them as on the day of Egypt, for indeed it is coming. And all of this is designed to teach that God is the Lord and ends up in verse 19. Thus I will execute judgments on Egypt, then they will know that I am the Lord. So this is another eschatological judgment related to the day of the Lord. So again, we see that the day of the Lord relates to judgment upon Gentile nations. Now, having looked at Ezekiel, let's skip to uh, two more passages to look at tonight, which I think we can cover in Zechariah and in Malachi. Zechariah. Let's turn to Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah is the next to last book in the Old Testament. Last three books, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Post-exilic, after the return from the exile. Chapter 14 of Zechariah is focused on the day of the Lord. Verse 1, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst, indicating uh, that there will be a time of blessing that comes. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. So it's a worldwide 
conflagration that is focused on Jerusalem. The city shall be taken. So what happens early on in that campaign of Armageddon is that there is a victory to the Antichrist as he captures and will take the city. The city will be taken, the houses rifled, and the women uh, ravished. Half the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall be cut off from the city. So this indicates an isolation of a remnant within the city itself, trapped there under siege by the Antichrist. Then the Lord, Yahweh, will go forth and fight against the nations. This will occur within the campaign of Armageddon. After the Lord rescues the remnant in Basra, we'll go through this when we put the stages together. After the Lord returns to Basra, rescues them, he leads them up from the south across Judah, the territory of Judah, to Jerusalem, which is when he comes, has his victory ascent up the up the Mount of Olives, and will uh, blast open a pathway in the wall, eastern wall of Jerusalem, so that the uh, the remnant that's trapped, that's referred to here, can escape across the Kidron Valley and through the uh, Mount of Olives, which is talked about in this chapter when it splits. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle, and in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north, half of it toward the south. Then you, that's this remnant within Jerusalem, then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. I'm not sure where that is, someplace out towards the Dead Sea. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. It shall come to pass in that day, that is the day of the Lord, that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. It will be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. And in that day it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them towards the eastern sea, that's the Dead Sea, which will no longer be dead after this point because now it's getting this fresh infusion of, of, of fresh water. Half of them towards the eastern sea, half of them towards the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur. So with this split of the Mount of Olives this that will uh, tap into some sort of underground spring of water which will flow out and will flow in two directions. It will flow east and west and it will rejuvenate the Dead Sea. And the Lord shall be king over the earth. So we see that this day of the Lord again immediately precedes uh, the establishment of the millennial kingdom, and it involves the rescue of the remnant. And so this establishes this aspect of the uh, of the day of the Lord. Now, one last passage to go to, and we'll wrap up our Old Testament verses. Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4. If you hit Matthew, just back up. Malachi chapter 4, last chapter in the Old Testament. Again, day of the Lord. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, not a positive image, indicating judgment. 
And all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. So again, emphasizing it is God's judgment on arrogant man, the earth dwellers that we've seen in, in Revelation. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. This is a final judgment. But to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise. This is the Lord Jesus Christ with healing in his wings. And you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. This is a time of great prosperity and happiness. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. So this describes this establishment of the kingdom. On the day, And this will all happen in conclusion on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. Then, verse 4, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb, that's Mount Sinai, for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. When you have this term great and terrible, great and dreadful day of the Lord, that emphasizes that final end time at Armageddon. So before that happens, Elijah has to come. And we've studied this in the past, that this refers to the ministry of the two witnesses that come, one of whom will either be uh, a resurrected Elijah or he will be one who receives the same spirit ministry as Elijah. I'm not sure which it will be. But his ministry is that of restoration, turning uh, the Israel in the tribulation, back to God. That's the focal point of verse 6. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. So what we've done is we've gone through the Old Testament passages, establishing what the day of the Lord is. And it is a time of judgment, but it precedes and includes a time of blessing, which will be the millennial kingdom. Now, the day of the Lord is used four times in the New Testament, I believe. And that each of those are key passages. Next time we will look at those uh, instances, tie some things together, and then we will start into putting together the chronology of the uh, Armageddon campaign with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this time to study your word, to be reminded that you are involved in history and that all of the injustice that has occurred, the violations of your covenants that have occurred in history, will bring about a historical judgment upon upon the nations, upon the unbelievers, that you will uh, bring about true vindication of your righteousness in human history. And that even though we may want it at this time in our lives, that we may see it in terms of injustice that occurs in the cosmic system, we know that we have to wait, that you are waiting, you are patient and long-suffering for the sake of those who will believe. And, Father, we pray that we might put our focus on the real purpose of history, which is ultimately the saving of those who uh, will turn to you that you might be glorified within the angelic conflict. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.